This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. As you get older, everything changes, and there's no just one magic thing. That's why I say whenever you look at some of these things, you have to approach it from a multifactorial point of view, not just a single point of view. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Bussin, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about men's health over 50. We'll discuss stress urinary incontinence. We'll find out about the best summer dry rubs. And lastly, we'll explore positive problem orientation versus negative problem orientation. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian owned and has been GMP certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular on the show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? Very good, Jamie. Thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure. I'm going to ask you to speak slowly, Gordon. I'm taking notes today because this one's like all the information I need to know because I just turned 55 recently. So I am your test subject. We're talking about men's health over 50, right? That's correct. So this is going to hit closer to home, right? Yeah. I'm going to learn all the things I'm doing wrong. So you're going to have to set me straight. Let's talk about digestion. Let's start there. Normal digestion and absorption of nutrients. Does that change as we get older? You know, as we get older, everything changes. And, and before I even go down that pathway, one of the things I, I, I want to point out is, you know, the reason I tweet onto this, even this thing, is that I have a lot of people that I chat with. And every so often, quite frequently, a lot of people come to me and say, Gordon, can I take this one product for this certain condition? Or not even for condition, but it seems to be the magic bullet. For example, somebody says to me, I can't sleep. I heard magnesium is good. Can I take magnesium? And I say to them, it's not only that one thing. It's a lot of things going on. As you, go, as you get older, everything changes. We're a dynamic machine. We're not a machine that, that's static. Right. right? Yep. So as we grow older, our repair mechanisms changes. That's why as you grow older, your immune system doesn't even work as good. Your digestive system doesn't work as good. I mean, you just know, like when you're in your 30s, you can go to a buffet, you can pile it on, and the worst will happen is that you feel so full, and that's it, right? You, yeah. you sit down there, it'll slowly digest itself. You try that now. I know you'll feel full, but then you'll be paying for it because you say, oh, this hurts. Never again, right? Yeah. Again, your digestive system changes, right? The ability to break down food changes. The quantity of digestive enzymes that we output will change as we grow older. Is that just because our bodies just like we're just deteriorating or is there like a, a reason why like our body functions differently? I don't think there's a magic reason as 
to there's not one thing that happened. I think it's a general decline in almost everything. That's why I've always said to everybody, you know what? As we get older, everything changes, and there's no just one magic thing. But you have to. That's why I say whenever you look at some of these things, you have to approach it from a multifactorial point of view, not just a single point of view. So some people will say, just fix the digestion and everything is fine. Yep. No. Yeah. <laughs> you know. No, no, of course. Uh, it's all interrelated. And, and sort of in light of that, let's sort of, we may be bouncing around a bit today, but I, I think, you know, our listeners will sort of get the big picture w- when we're done. So like shifting gears, like one of the big changes is, is a change in our hormones, right? And, that's correct. And so, you know, I think everybody recognizes, you know, that, you know, there, there are more, certainly with women, it's it's prevalent that there are hormonal changes. Can the same be said for men? And, and is there yeah. anything we can do about it? Of course, there's a lot of things to said for men because we know as we get older, our testosterone levels drop. Yep. We also know our growth hormone drops from the time you hit about 30. is starting to decrease. And some people say it's probably even before that, but we do know it decreases. Uh, the amount of melatonin that we put out at night also decreases. That's why we don't sleep as well sometimes. And if that was the only case, I'd say, you know, for sleeping, I to take more melatonin. But that's not the only thing that happens, right? Mm-hmm. There's also stress issues that we deal with, right? So, you know, but one of the things that I tell everybody that we should be doing, outside of, you know, you do your exercise. Exercise is one of the best things, right? Yep. But after that, there's a, still a whole bunch of things that you should supplement yourself with, right? You supplement your body with making sure you get all your vitamins, yep. right? If we eat a lot of different foods, Right, we can get a lot of different vitamins, and the whole idea with eating well is the variety of foods that you get. Right, mm-hmm. that you eat, eat foods from all over the world, and the reason for that is because you get minerals. Sometimes, if you live in a place that's low in selenium, right, mm-hmm. but if you're eating foods from all over the world, you get selenium amply enough in your diet. Right, but I also know the good insurance policy is to supplement with some B vitamins and some minerals, multi-minerals. Those are one of the things that you can do. But that's, I think, is the basics that you can do. But you have to think to address hormonal health, right? Yeah. Things like energy levels. As we get older, some of us find that we're less energetic. And not everybody ages at the same rate, right? You know there are people who, if you look at them, they're 60, but they look as if they're 40. And then you look at a 60-year-old that looks like he's like 80, right? So everybody's a little bit different. But, I mean, we can mitigate some of those changes by taking some phytonutrients, like things like ginseng is also very good for that. It helps with energy. You take things like ginkgo biloba, some basic things which will help with things like cognitive health. EFA is essential fatty acids, right, which is like fish oil, right? I mean, I can run through a gamut of all these things, but what I'm, my basic message that I want to tell everybody is to take a wide variety of different supplements and it will help. There's no one magic bullet. No, I, I know it's your belief to get the nutrients from broad sources and, and there isn't just one thing we should do. And, and you touched upon it, you know, exercise, it isn't just for movement and mobility. Like when you are building muscle and we're all capable of doing it, you know, throughout our lives to varying degrees, you know, you're helping your hormonal balance as well, right? Like if, if you're building muscle, you're helping to produce testosterone, for example. So for men, right. it's, you know, if you don't know it, it's one thing to go out for a walk, which is great. You know, doing something is better than doing nothing. But if you are low in testosterone, you might want to consider doing a little bit of body weight exercises or even getting some dumbbells or barbells and, and pumping a little bit of iron because it'll help with all sorts of different things, like even getting a good night's sleep. 
For sure. And also there's some herbs that people have done, yeah. that have taken, that supplement the production of testosterone. So things like epimedium, which is commonly known as horny goat weed, right? Yeah, You know, there's something called daughter seed, which is cascuta, also helps with prostate health as also with testosterone love productions, etc. Yep. Right? So as we get older as men, you know, you have to look after prostate health. You have to look after joint health. Yep. Right? Every little thing. So, you know, taking glucosamine is also a very good thing, but it should be taken in conjunction with your vitamins and your minerals. What do we need glucosamine for, Gordon? Glucosamine is a building block for rebuilding cartilage, etc. Now, in all fairness, the body does have glucosamine. It produces its own glucosamine. But as we grow older, it's like anything else. It produces less and less or may not be producing enough. And if it's not producing enough, you have to have it from an outside source. And easiest outside source is by supplementation. So, I mean, even things like, you know, you have people who take things like extra protein. Yeah, I was, was going to say protein, like we, you know, it's harder to digest protein as you get older, but it's crucial that we have adequate protein yeah. levels, right? You know? Yeah, I also find as you grow older, you tend to want to eat less meat. Yeah. And so your, your meals are smaller, so your, the quantity of protein that you take in is also less. So it's a good idea to supplement with protein. So one of the easiest sources of supplement of protein supplementation is with whey protein, mm-hmm. right? So yep. you add a little bit of extra whey protein to whatever you eat. You make a milkshake in the morning, add a little bit of the whey protein in your, in your shake. Well, not necessarily milk because people who are allergic to dairy, mm-hmm. but you can you don't necessarily need to use whey there's alternative protein sources which is some plant-based proteins you can take right but make sure if you're using plant-based it's a complete protein because a lot of plant-based proteins are not necessarily complete right Mm -hmm. by that i mean having all the essential amino acids it's a whole uh, how would i say this it's not something that that i wish i can cover like in 15. <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we're, we're giving people... We're doing the broad strokes today. We're, we're giving people food for thought. And uh, yeah. as always, you know, if, if they have questions and, you know, they always do, when you come on, we get more mail than anybody. But, you know, <laughs> if people have specific questions, we can always sort of pass them along and, you know, either you or, or the great staff that you have at your company can answer these questions. But, for sure. you know, these are broad strokes, just sort of food for thought ideas. If you're feeling under the weather or if you're feeling particularly, you know, older than your age on a particular day, these are just things you can think about. You know, I do the family shopping and, you know, I will come across multivitamins, for example. And, and I always find it fascinating as to how they're marketed and, and what they're for. What are, you, what are your thoughts on the multivitamins? Multivitamins are good. The only problem I have with multivitamins is that the multivitamins, there doesn't seem to be enough of a lot of them in there, right? Yeah. The multivitamins are usually good for an individual who is you know, exercising, eating well. It's just insurance policy. And in North America, the vast majority of us could do very well with the multivitamins the way they exist. Mm-hmm. Okay? You know, in different places, like the world countries, you might need to, to ramp it up a bit. But for us in North America, the vast majority of us, and I, and I say the vast majority of us, because there's always somebody who's going who's gonna to be needing more, much more than what you're finding in the regular multi. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what I also would like to see in some of these multis is that, you know, you put some of the accessory nutrients, you know, some of the phytonutrients in there, right? And usually a lot of that is because people don't normally think of taking phytonutrients. And when I say phytonutrients, I'm talking about plant-based stuff. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things from plants, right? So even your ginkgo biloba, you normally will not find that in the multi in the multivitamin. 
right? Mm-hmm. But all those things are important just because you have to address so many different things. Okay. So I want to make sure we're getting the right takeaway point. So I think what you're saying is if you have baseline health and you're just looking to make sure that you're, you're getting, you know, the extra vitamins and nutrients, a multivitamin could be a good solution for you, right? Definitely. But if you're having specific issues, if you're not really in great health, you might want to consider, you know, still taking all these vitamins, but probably dosing separately to make sure that you're, you're dealing with things. Yeah. Yeah, but don't only stop at the multi at the vitamins, right? right? Because you have other issues. I, I have a very good friend of mine, right? He's turning about fifty, and he comes to me and he says, "Gordon, I'm not sleeping at night, yep. but I heard magnesium is great for sleeping at night, mm-hmm. right?" And I said to him, "Dude, you know, if the magic answer was magnesium, everybody would be sleeping like a baby every night, <laughs> right?" Yeah. I said, yeah. "I said, you know, I'm, unfortunately, you're hitting fifty. The hormones are not as active as they used to be, so you you should be taking things like some ginseng, you know. You should be taking some essential fatty acids, a whole tr- a supplement regimen, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the exercise. Now, this guy exercises quite a bit, so it's not the exercise component, but he, you know." There's other issues in his life, like stress and so on. So you need you can take things like ginseng, which will help with stress, mm-hmm. right? It's a way of controlling corticosteroids and so on, right? So there's a lot of these adaptogenic herbs, I say, that people can use. And, you know, the herbal side of, of supplementation, not too much is spoken about it because it seems to be like a great mystery of, about the herbal side of it. You know? Yeah. And one of the things I would like to say is that, you know, people go out there, explore the herbal side. Because, you know what, the herbals have been out there for a long time. It's not something we just discovered yesterday. Right? They've been using these as a first line of treatment for the longest while. And they do help. But it is not like taking a drug where you see immediate effects. It's something that you have to take and you recognize it that it helps over time. Right. Right. That's how I, I normally um, talk to right. people. Right, so you're not, you, it's, all, it's preventative medicine, right? Like these are things it's that, pre- yeah. things it's that you have preventative. to do. So we have a few minutes left, and I know one of your favorite topics is antioxidants. So to finish off this interview, maybe in the next couple of minutes, you could explain the role of antioxidants as we age. Well, one of the things as we age is that we get a lot of chronic ailments, right? Mm-hmm. Chronic ailments, so, so things like arthritis. Right, we have you know if you look at your blood vessels, I mean, I'm I'm sure there's plaque formation going on in there, right? And one of the things that we do know that you know almost every single disease known to man, right, is either initiated by a free radical or potentiated by free radicals, meaning it's made worse by free radicals. Mm-hmm. And a lot of chronic ailments, there's always that underlying subclinical inflammation component that normally we don't discuss it or just glossed over because we have no drugs for a direct treatment of subclinical inflammation because there are anti-inflammatory drugs, but it's like smashing a mosquito with a sledgehammer. Right. The, the side effects are worse than the, than the little mosquito bite that you would get. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. things like antioxidants are perfect for that because what they do, they dampen the effect of the subclinical inflammation. Right? So you can take it and it'll help stop some of that subclinical inflammation. Now, I'd love to sit down here and say, you know, it stops it altogether. It doesn't, but we need to sort of control it. Right, mm-hmm. And whether we like it or not, inflammation is also good because inflammation is what allows us to rebuild our muscles, to strengthen our muscles, to make them bigger. Right, So you need some breakdown of tissue, and inflammation is the driving force to break down the tissue. So it's all about balance. Right Now, somebody asked me more recently that can we take too much antioxidants? Well, 
if we're taking it in pill form or even in food form, right, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to take too much because the concentration of the antioxidant is not there. Secondly, the body has a way it takes it in. It also gets rid of it. So it doesn't hang out there and wait in storage all the time, right? And even whatever is stored is usually not so much that it overwhelms the entire body. So I call it a work in progress, right? It's like eating a lot more vegetables, etc. right? You provide the body with a lot of antioxidants, but it doesn't stick around long enough, right, in and out. So the message is more antioxidants is better. Don't worry about overdoing it. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We focused on men's health this month. How about next month we talk about women's health over 50? What do you think? That's a very good idea. We'll we'll talk about women's health. I call it aging gracefully. Perfect. Sounds great. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss stress urinary incontinence on the tonic. Is menopause putting a damper on the little things that make your day? Are you tired of dealing with hot flashes, mood swings, and sleep disruptions? New Roots Herbal can help you take control of those annoying symptoms so you can feel better and enjoy life to the fullest. Discover Menopeace, Maca Organic, and Sleep 8 from New Roots Herbal. They use only the highest quality natural ingredients tested for purity and potency in an ISO-accredited lab. And you can find them at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Do you know that one in three women suffer from SUI? SUI, or stress urinary incontinence, doesn't only affect older women, it can affect active, healthy women at any time and at any place. The numbers go up after childbirth and then dramatically increase when menopause hits. For many women, bladder leaks can be a huge deterrent from working out, and most women rely on pads which are uncomfortable to work out in. Uresta is a safe, non-invasive alternative to pads or surgery. It can provide immediate support to stop or significantly reduce leaks. Some people may use it just for exercise, while others will find the most benefit using it on a daily basis. For more information, please visit Uresta.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. After graduating from the Ivy School of Business, Lauren Barker started her career on Bay Street in investment banking with TD Securities. She then joined Torquest Partners, a leading Canadian private equity firm, where she helped entrepreneurs and management teams develop and execute strategic plans to grow their businesses. Lauren's career then led her to Drop Technologies, a fast-growing Canadian technology startup in business operations. She originally joined Uresta as Chief Financial Officer in fall of 2020 and was subsequently promoted to CEO in early 2021. Lauren is passionate about destigmatizing SUI, educating women that SUI is not just a condition experienced by older women and empowering women to live their lives leak-free. Welcome to the show, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. So I've mentioned SUI twice. What is SUI? So SUI stands for stress urinary incontinence, and it's the involuntary release of urine in women doing everyday activities like coughing, jumping, leaking, basically anything that's putting pressure on the bladder. So I always like to say if you ever see a woman crossing her legs when she's about to sneeze or not participating in jumping jacks during a workout class, she likely has stress urinary incontinence, and 
she might not know it's called stress urinary incontinence. She might label it as like bladder leakage, or a lot of women might call it their mommy bladder, reflecting the fact that uh, childbirth is a really common contributor to this condition. Mm -hmm. But essentially what's happening is the pelvic floor muscles that support the urethra have weakened over time for a number of different reasons. And I always like to think of a balloon in kind of your lower abdomen and use this analogy. So imagine a filled balloon, it's in your lower abdomen, and the stem of the balloon is pointing downwards. And that stem is your urethra. Mm -hmm. And so that's how urine will leave your body. And so with women who have stress urinary incontinence, they don't have enough muscle force to keep that stem of the balloon or the urethra closed during those moments of extra pressure, like coughing or jumping and laughing. And so a little bit of urine will leak out. And it's actually really common. So stress urinary incontinence impacts one in three women between ages 30 to 60, and as many as one in two by time of menopause. So incredibly common, but unfortunately still remains a bit of a taboo subject for women. Why is it taboo? Very interesting question. I've, I've definitely talked to a lot of women about this. We've done surveys. So, of course, it's embarrassing, right? Yeah. No one wants to be wetting themselves. And I think also there's this element of unpredictability. You never know when you're going to cough. You never know when you're going to sneeze. And so when we talk to women, a lot of them say, you know, I hate being in public because I never know when it's going to happen. I've sat next to my boss on a plane and I've leaked. And then the entire flight, I'm just thinking, can they smell the odor from my urine leak, right? So it's super embarrassing. And I think women also kind of think it's only an older women's issue, but it's really not, especially for young moms, right? So women in their 30s that have had one or more children through a vaginal birth, they likely will have this condition. So super common, but obviously embarrassing. And the other thing that's quite interesting is only half of women actually talk openly about this condition. So half of women talk to their friends or family about this condition, but only half are actually talking to their physicians about this condition. And we've talked to a lot of physicians and they've said, we actually have to ask the woman if she suffers from it. They won't openly express that to us, which I think is super interesting. And I think, unfortunately, that lack of talking between, you know, friends or your physician is, I think, has contributed to, unfortunately, a lack of solutions in the space and has impacted women's quality of life because they're not actively pursuing kind of better alternatives for themselves or trying to find a better solution to manage their leaks. So if you were to have an open conversation with a woman who might be suffering with SUI, what sort of advice would you give regarding management of the condition? So it depends. So for a lot of women, if it is mild, which unfortunately it's one of those things that is persistent, it does get worse with age. But if you're on the younger side or if it's mild, there might be a few things that you could do to help improve your leak. So if you're carrying a little bit of extra weight, you can lose some weight. So any extra pressure on your bladder is going to reduce pressure, obviously. You can also see a pelvic floor physiotherapist, so they can give you exercises to strengthen your pelvic floor. But unfortunately for a lot of women, it's hard for them to completely eliminate their leaks, and they need to look for alternatives elsewhere to manage. So we know from talking to women that majority of women are actually using disposable pads to manage their leaks. So Jamie, I'm sure you can understand that's not a great solution, right? They're just absorbing the leaks. They're not actually stopping them. And for me, it's like, 
you know, you have a leaky roof and you put a bucket out, right? And you keep getting a drop and you just empty the bucket and you go back to it every day and you never fix your roof. You're not really solving the problem. And like I said earlier, you know, those leaks can contribute to a lot of anxiety around odor. You feel gross. You know, you feel like you're sitting in an unsanitary wet pad. It's it's not ideal for women. And so we have a solution and that was, that was actually developed by a Canadian urogynecologist who saw a gap in the market. And we have a solution called Uresta that actually stops leaks versus absorbing them. And it's made of medical grade resin. And it's a product that is inserted into the vagina. And its unique shape basically presses up against the urethra and provides additional support to those muscles so that when a woman does cough or laugh or sneeze or jump, it provides a little bit of extra support and actually stops the leaks from leaking out. I actually like to say it's an ankle brace, but for your bladder. Is it a procedure to insert your or is this something that women can do themselves on a daily basis, for example? Com- completely self-managed, non-invasive. And actually, that was one of the reasons why our founding physician founded it, because some of the medical alternatives, so yeah. there's something called traditional pessaries. I call them traditional pessaries. They're called pessaries, but they're these devices that basically get inserted into the vagina, but they can live in a woman or stay in a woman for up to three months. So it's really hard for these devices for a woman to take in and out herself. So she has to go to her doctor as many times as four times a year to get them taken out. With Uresta, it actually functions very similar to a traditional pessary in terms of function. It's providing that extra support, but it comes with a handle. So a woman can take it in and out herself and really give her a ton of flexibility. For example, we have women that their weeks are so bad that they have to wear Uresta all day. And it's made of medical grade resin, so it's super safe for full day use. We just recommend you take it out at night and you wash it with soap and water and then you put it back in in the morning because leaks aren't really a problem in the evening since it's activity driven. Mm-hmm. And then we also have women who just use it for exercising. So this is a huge problem for women, active women, especially runners, right? Anything that's high impact is just going to be creating your leaks. And I'm sure you can imagine a lot of people or a lot of women, it's hard enough to get to the gym, let alone having to deal with bladder leaks while you're working out. So right. yep. it gives women a lot of flexibility on how they want to use it. And maybe it's just a social event or maybe it's traveling on a plane. So it's increased flexibility for the woman and it's something that they can completely manage on their own without a physician. We're actually over the counter. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that, you know, in terms of helping the issue, there might be some exercises that women can do. Are are you referring to Kegels or is is this something else? Yeah, totally. So pelvic floor physiotherapists are great and actually... What is interesting is that women that suffer from this condition, less than a quarter of them have actually talked to a pelvic floor physiotherapist. And they're growing in the U.S. and they're common in Canada, but a little less so. But they can give you exercises that are commonly known as Kegels to help strengthen your pelvic floor. What's interesting is I think a lot of women think, okay, I'll just do Kegels and this will solve the issue. Actually, doing too many Kegels can actually cause pelvic floor dysfunction. Ah. So super important if this is something, and I highly recommend it, and a lot of pelvic floor physiotherapists are supporters of our product, but if that's something you want to seek out, 
I would definitely see a pelvic floor physiotherapist to get a proper routine for those exercises. And Uresta can be, and is often used as a complement as well to pelvic floor therapy as well. Like I said before, I like to think of Uresta as an ankle brace. So if you sprained your ankle, for example, you would wear an ankle brace and you would do exercises to strengthen your ankle. And maybe those exercises are enough for you to throw away the ankle brace. But in some cases, it may not be, and maybe you now need to wear an ankle brace every time you work out. Your rest and Kegels work the same way. Okay, I think you mentioned before that this is an issue that impacts women more as they age. Why is that? So a couple different reasons. I think, you know, as we all know, our muscles weaken over time, so our pelvic floor muscles are no different. Mm -hmm. And then menopause as well. So that drop in estrogen at time of menopause causes changes to pelvic organs and tissues and muscles and unfortunately contributes to the issue as well. Okay, we have time for one last question. And it's actually, it's not even quite a question. It is, you have a a special offer for our listeners today, right? Yeah, we do. So we are offering to all Tonic listeners today $50 off the cost of your Rusta. So we will provide you with a link that if you're a listener, you can go to the Tonic website and you can get that unique discount code for $50 off and it's available till the end of July. Well, that is fantastic news. So you don't need to get your pens or pencils out or you need to click it into your phone. Just go visit the tonic.ca and the link will be down at the bottom of the page and in the show notes for Lauren's interview. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. We have to take a short break, but we'll return to discuss dry rubs on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice, The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. You're a genuine health enthusiast listening to this show today. And Activation Products is your dream come true when it comes to living in a perfectly healthy body. Reclaim your health, cleanse your body, and extend your life. Activation makes all this possible by providing you with the best products for your best health. Activation products can elevate your whole body's health in ways you had no idea were possible. No matter how old or how young you are, it's their mission to deliver to you the most efficacious health products available in the world today. Treat yourself now and find out what it's like to live in a perfectly healthy body, making every day a joy to be alive. Go to ActivationProducts.com and start your journey on reclaiming your health. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Carolyn Tanner-Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. She teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. Carolyn teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can always visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, Jamie. Great. How are you? Good. Happy summer. Thank you. Finally. Yeah. (laughs) So last month, we discussed marinades. 
but there are other ways to infuse flavors into the foods that you are cooking, right? Yes. Actually, my preferred method. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay, so, so let's talk about some dry rubs. Okay, so dry rubs are really the way to go. I mean, there's definitely reasons and, and places for marinades, especially we talked about, you know, my Greek chicken with yep. the lemon juice. But dry rubs are really the way to go, and also they're so great for the summer. So first let me tell you that, and I'll get into which ones I use, but I always have a stash in my pantry, and we've discussed this before, of probably, you know, eight or ten different dry rubs that I've made. Yeah, and they serve different purposes. I mean, the other night for dinner I had my parents very last minute, and I pulled out my porcini rub, threw it on some chicken scallopini, put on the barbecue, dinner was on the table in 15 minutes. Chicken scallopini on the barbecue, you're a brave woman. Mm. I know. People say don't do it because it's so thin, but I don't know why they say that. It's so great. As long as you spray the barbecue well with nonstick spray, and the chicken takes, you know, two minutes per side, super juicy chicken breast, and uh, with the porcini rub, oh my goodness, it was so good. <laughs> so dry rubs are basically just a spice blend and and you're just kind of, they get infused into the flesh of, let's say, the meat that you're using, right? Yeah. I don't know if infused is the right word, but they develop a crust. Some people call it a bark. Yep. You really hear that word in barbecue, like yep. Texas-style barbecue. So a dry rub is really a mixture of spices, mm-hmm. seasonings, salt, and often, but not always, and we'll definitely talk about this, sugar. Okay. Okay. So there's a chemical reaction that happens when heated and when sort of mixed with the fat from the meat. And that will offer the meat so many delicious, or chicken, by the way, or fish results. And in fact, a dry rub is the best for fish because a marinade is not great for fish. Okay. Okay. So what's the best way to apply a dry rub? What are some of the technical aspects of it? Okay. So the technical, for me, the technical aspect, the way I do it is I pat the meat dry Mm -hmm. very well, unlike a marinade. I don't really need to do that after. So I pat the meat dry. I tend to oil it and then sprinkle a generous amount of dry rub on the chicken, fish, meat, or even vegetable. Okay. Okay. You don't really need the oil, especially for a steak. But if I'm putting it on the barbecue, I tend to put a little bit of oil on the meat. I tend to oil the meat and not the grill. Yep. The cast iron, usually maybe both, but definitely the cast iron. Yeah, it, it kind of depends what I'm doing. But you definitely yeah. you oil the meat first and then you put the rub yeah. on. Because yeah. otherwise it's just a mess. So Right. But also, some people think that you need to sprinkle that dry rub on well in advance. No. And in fact, you don't want to. No. Okay. Because you don't want the herbs or the sugar or the salt to melt. You want to keep it dry so that it makes this crunch or bark, the crust. So you alluded to it a moment ago, but let's delve into it. Sugar or no sugar in your dry rub? Okay. So taste-wise, 100% sugar. Yeah. Well, I'll talk about when and when you shouldn't. But if you're going to use sugar, I prefer brown sugar. Yep. Even the light brown sugar is best. But white sugar will do. In fact, I use white sugar with my porcini rub. But if you want to sort of have a healthier alternative to sugar, you could use coconut sugar because that works very well as well. I use exclusively brown sugar in the rub. And the issue that we're sort of dancing around is once you put sugar on a meat that, for example, you are grilling, you have to be careful because it will burn if you're not cooking properly. Exactly. In fact, have you ever tried, maybe in your old days before you really knew how to cook, 
putting the barbecue sauce on, for marinating the yeah. barbecue sauce. It's a and then you put it on the grill and you have a burnt mess. Yeah, it's a disaster. Right. Yeah. So it's a disaster. So, I mean, we could touch on that, but if you put barbecue sauce on early, then it'll the sugars will caramelize and you've burnt the exterior of the meat. So you always apply the barbecue sauce when the meat is, you know, 90 to 95% cooked. So the same application would happen with the dry rub with the sugar. If you're cooking, let's say, a steak at high heat, like 450 or above, like a fast sear, mm-hmm. then you don't want to have sugar in the dry rub. Correct. If you're going 450 and lower, and ideally 350 and lower, then sugar is optimal because it'll caramelize the outside. So I smoke a lot of poultry and fish on the barbecue, mm. and you have to cook at a low temperature. The sugar is crucial if you're smoking, like crucial. And really any slow, low cook, the sugar is just going to help. It just is. Now, why do you say crucial as opposed to just tastes really good? Well, because it tastes really good. Okay, good. Because it tastes really good. Okay, yeah. okay. But it's not like a chemical. Yeah, thing, but right? no, no, but we're not trying to like create a caramel on my meat. It, it's right. just like you're just, you're putting the sugar in because it melds with the natural caramelization process of the meat as it sears, right? So, or as it mm-hmm. cooks. So that's why, right? Like, and, and some of the meats, particularly in the smoking process, the sugar sort of brings out the smoky flavor, in my opinion. So, yeah. For sure. And sugar mixed with like a smoked paprika or a smoked chili, like an ancho or chipotle is delish. So what would you put on your steaks? Because I have sort of a secret weapon, but I want to hear yours too. I do not put... Okay, so steaks, if it's a good cut of meat, it's just salt and pepper. Like if if you're getting a good steak, I really do not put a dry rub on my steaks. Yeah. If I'm using tougher cut of meat, like a flank steak... I will go with a Mexican-style rub, as you mentioned, ancho chili powder. Smoked paprika is a big one. It goes in almost all my rubs. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't tend to put sugar in this one. I'll put coriander, cumin, that kind of stuff. A little bit of cayenne to give it a little little bit of kick. What about you? What are your go-to rubs? So, for a steak, especially in the winter when I'm putting the dry rub on the cast iron pan, Mm -hmm. I will mix... For a good cut, like I'm talking in New York, uh, yeah. uh, L.A., I will mix a little bit of cornstarch in it. Oh. Yeah. It was a pro tip I learned, like, a long, long time ago, and it really makes a difference. It's just a little bit. It's not a lot, but it makes a really delicious crust. Okay. On a steak. So this is especially really, especially good on the cast iron pan when you're doing it. The barbecue doesn't really seem to matter with the cornstarch, but the cast iron, it really does. If I'm going, if um, I'm going cast iron on a meat, I'm probably butter basting or something. So I'm not, this, right. the crust will come from the natural caramelization. Yes. So what are some of your go-to rubs? Okay. So my favorite one right now is the one with the porcini. So I buy dried porcini mushrooms mm-hmm. and you could cheat and buy like the mixed dried mushrooms mm-hmm. and it'll, it's okay too. But the dried porcini is outstanding. So a mixture of dried porcini, dried mustard. I really like the Keens brand dried mustard. Yep. Okay. Sugar. So brown sugar or white sugar. If I'm planning on keeping the rub for a long time in my pantry, like I'm talking the summer, let's say, mm-hmm. I'll usually use white sugar only because the brown hardens. Mm-hmm. And garlic, flaked garlic. So when I say flaked garlic, I don't use garlic powder, the stuff that looks like baby powder. Mm-hmm. I use either the flakes like something you'd see on everything but the bagel, mm-hmm. or 
at minimum, granulated garlic, which more looks like sand as opposed to powder. So are you blitzing your porcinis in a, in a spice grinder to get it down to a powder? I don't actually, believe it or not, I don't own a spice grinder. Wow. I blitz them in the blender. Oh, okay. So you're creating a powder from, yes, from the porcini, yes, right? Yes, okay. exactly. So I'll buy like a 15 gram bag or sometimes they come yep. in 25 gram. Yeah. And then I'll add like of that, a small fraction of dry mustard, a little bit of sugar. I use kosher salt granulated garlic or flaked garlic. You could put granulated onion or flaked onion. If you like that, you don't need it. And pepper. And really, that's all you need. But you could add other things as well if you want. Okay. And what's the best meat that goes with that one? Chicken's incredible. Veal is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I've been known to coat an entire fillet, like a beef tenderloin with that. Mm -hmm. What else have I done? Steaks I really like, but it's not the best. Halibut is fantastic with that. Mm -hmm. So it's with anything that you like mushrooms with, you're going to like that. And the combination of with the mustard. So lamb is really, really good with that. Even lamb chops. You know, dry mustard, Jamie, is an amazing secret weapon because anything you would add mustard to, like in a vinaigrette or a marinade or anything, you just replace it with dried mustard for a dry rub. Sounds good. Now, what's your ratio of dry rub to meat? It's about a tablespoon of rub for every pound of meat. Okay. But for the porcini, by the way, I go more. And for the spicy ones, I go less. And if you're doing salmon, I go less. And if I'm doing veal, I go more. Something like, you know. So why do you do more with veal and why do you do more with the porcini rub in particular? The porcini rub is mostly porcini. Ah. So it's not like you're dealing with mostly salt. Got it. You're dealing with mostly porcini and you really, really need to up that if you want to really taste the porcini. Also, it tends to come off a little bit on the barbecue, so you have to make sure it's well-coated. So essentially, it's really an umami rub, right? Like that's the porcini that you're bringing out is the umami flavor, right? Yes, it's delicious. I make my own. I call it mushroom and friends. Okay, so we have time for one last question, and that is, do you use dry rubs on vegetables? Oh, I'm so happy you asked that because I'm a huge vegetable lover, and also I always have a vegetarian at my table. So yes, I will generally take the same dry rub that I'm using for the meat or chicken or fish and apply it to a cauliflower steak or even a broccoli steak or even a piece of eggplant. Now, remember, you've got to salt the eggplant to extract the liquid, and then it goes on the grill. Just have to say that. For a cauliflower steak, you cook it low and slow mm-hmm. so that you could you don't have to boil it ahead of time, or you could even just do it in the oven. And absolutely, you add the dry rub, put it on the barbie, and call it a day. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come back next month? Yeah, can't wait. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Are you looking for a fast track program to hit the ground running, speed up your success and build a coaching business on your own terms? You can launch your own lucrative coaching career in two days with the Certified Coach Practitioner Program. This program inspires you to take that first step in your coaching career, teaches you the ins and outs of coaching, gives you unique tools and resources for your client meetings and offers continual support so you can start your coaching career on the right foot. With the Certified Coach Practitioner Training Program, you'll go from being busy with a desperate need for a change to running a lucrative and bankable coaching business that fits your lifestyle. For more information, visit CertifiedCoachesFederation.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. 
They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Tracy Segrati has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at tracysegrati.com, Sagrati Yoga on Facebook, or at Tracy Segrati on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. I'm pumped to be here, and I'm really excited for our topic today. Okay, so people who know me know that like one yeah. of my strengths is I am a world-class problem solver. Like, yeah, yeah like, it's true. Probably not my number one skill. Yeah. But so today we're going to discuss problem solving for people who may not be so good at it. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's one of those things like I actually love that you know that about yourself and I know that about you just from, you know, knowing you for so many years. But it's one of those things that if you can't like if you struggle to effectively solve problems, as you know, like as you get older, life just kind of keeps punching you in the face. Right. And the reality is like we need to be able to bolster our ability to deal with whatever comes up. And and I just find with aging, it just gets, you know, more intense. So, so yeah, that's our topic today. Okay, so let's start off by asking a question. Like, why does how we approach problems matter? Yeah, this is really important. So the way I'm, I'm coming at this today is is from a cognitive behavioral therapy perspective. And okay. it's, it's really like the most empirically supported kind of therapy. And why it's so useful for people is because the whole principle behind it is that you can learn to be your own therapist. And so this approach, what it basically says is that the way that you think impacts the way that you feel, which we know, right? Mm-hmm. The way that you feel impacts how you act or your behavior, and then how you act impacts your environment, so what's happening around you. And then here's the next part, which I think is pretty crucial. The consequences of how you act may sort of unintentionally reinforce a negative thinking pattern. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yep. So, for example, if the way that you think about a problem is sort of negative inherently, then it can be really challenging to navigate life. So, like, for example, say you're introverted, mm-hmm. right? And you think to yourself, you think to yourself, oh, if I go to this social gathering, everyone's going to talk at me or they're going to think I'm awkward. So the feeling that you get from that is feeling really insecure. So then you go to the social event because, really, you actually want to connect. But when you get there, you're thinking to yourself that everybody's looking at you funny, Mm-hmm. And so you start avoiding people and giving them looks. And what happens is you have a negative experience because no one talks to you because you're avoiding them. Right. right? And yeah. so the consequences of that thought pattern are that you actually just can't meet your needs, which, you know, in this example, which is a pretty common one that I just gave you. Yep. In that example, it's just your need for connection. Right. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and if you start looking for the indicia, 
that reinforces your belief system. So if you believe you're an introvert and it's going to manifest in a certain way and then it starts to happen, well, then, of course, you're right. right? Yeah, exactly. And how do you move forward from there? 100%. Yeah, yeah. well, it it kind of like it just it imprisons you, right? You you become imprisoned by your own mind. and, And this is where it gets really problematic, especially as our bodies. Like I just keep thinking of, you know, working in hospitals and what happens with people's bodies over time as they age. And it's like, no, we need to be able to address major developmental changes that happen so that we can live long, healthy, happy lives. Okay. So what is a negative problem orientation? Okay. So there's kind of three general points. So the first one is that you see problems or you think about problems as hopeless or unsolvable. And so when I notice that people have this, kind of their first comment to me will be, I can't do it or no. Or if I ask them to do something, like say someone's coming to work on your house and you say like, can you put like a gas line here? They're like, nope, nope, can't be done. Okay. So it's that kind of knee-jerk reaction, like everything's hopeless, you can't solve the problem. The feeling is that you're incapable of improving things, right? And Mm -hmm. this sort of means that you have a low frustration tolerance. And that's an important thing we're going to circle back to. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing, maybe the most important, is that you'll tend to give up at the first sign of failure or where, where there's this inability to change things on the first shot. And the consequence of that, like if we go back to this idea of the consequences, are that if you give up right away when things get tough, then it reinforces your belief pattern that things are hopeless in the first place. And then you're just caught in a trap. It's a cycle. Yeah. Everything, you become fatalistic, right? Yeah. Everything is preordained, predetermined. There's no way forward. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's look at the opposite. What is a positive problem orientation? So this is where, and this is this is kind of you. Like when I think about you, I was laughing when I was thinking about talking about this topic because I'm like, I've seen you do this. Yep. This is where you think of problems as a challenge. And you can think of it kind of like solving a puzzle. Yep. Right? It's where like something comes at you and instead of it feeling threatening, it feels like an opportunity to figure something out. And so because you're thinking of the problem in that way, you feel confident. You feel like you have the ability to change things or improve things, even if it's just a little bit. And then because of that thought and feeling connection, then you just keep trying to solve the problem, even in the face of setbacks and failures. Because the reality is, is, you know, if it's a big enough problem, there's going to be a ton of setbacks. If you're an innovator and you're trying to do something in a whole new way, there's going to be many failures before you get to a place where, you know, you feel like you've made some progress. And so the fact that you keep trying is going to reinforce that thought-feeling pattern of both empowerment and the sense that you're actually capable. I actually get immense gratification from solving difficult problems. Yeah. Like, like I have to tell you, and it's funny, you know, my personality type is in my spare time, I will work on puzzles and problems for oh, fun, right? Right? Yeah. Like I love mm-hmm. crosswords. I love like any puzzle. I will spend mm-hmm. hours doing it. It's a mental exercise. And I find people who deal with problems are fantastic at seeing patterns. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, and I think they're fantastic at seeing patterns, but one thing I want to add is it's a skill that can be built. 100%. Right? Like yep. it's it's something because sometimes a person might think, oh, okay, well, I don't see patterns or I'm not a good problem solver. And, and that's sort of a fixed mindset perspective. And what we know from tons of research, so this isn't just me sort of speaking anecdotally, is that these are skills that can be learned. And that's why CBT is so great because you can learn to do this just with practice. 
right? It's not yeah. like if you're kind of an inherently pessimistic person, for example, right? Oh, like, oh, if you, if who, who you, might you be discussing at this point? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the thing. This yeah, is why weird. I wanted to bring it up because, yeah. you know, you're a really interesting guy because you're both an amazing problem solver and I would also say extremely innovative. Like, you can pivot faster than I've seen, you know, many people be able to pivot. But at the same time, you know, you can be quite pessimistic. 100%. And the reality is, is, you know, even though things like temperament and character, they tend to be fairly stable characteristics over time, you know, if you focus on something and just see it as a skill, you can, with practice, completely change the way that you're approaching an aspect of your life. I look at my pessimism as sort of like an alarm system, right? Like, like I tend to see pitfalls. I think I'm successful in problem solving because I see the problems faster than other people. Like I kind of see them on the horizon coming and I've sort of trained myself to deal with them as I see them, which means I always feel like there's problems, but then I'm always capable of solving. Does that make any sense? Whereas like problems don't sneak up on me. I see them. Yeah. Coming. So, so you're, you're kind of talking about two things, but I like where you're going with it because one, one of the things that you're talking about is like, first of all, that you're, the pessimism is sort of related to the tracking of the environment. Right? Yeah, so some yeah. of us track our environments a, li- a little bit more vigilantly than say other people. And, and so that's sort of one facet of your character. But the second piece of it, the fact that you see the problem and you address the problem as it comes up. And this is the important point, right? And this is where we've got that positive problem orientation. Yeah. Because if you see the problem and it feels threatening and you do the ostrich thing where you stick your head in the sand, then it just kind of compounds, right? So, you know, I I think about health, for example, right? Like somebody who's got like wonky blood sugar who just leaves it and doesn't go to the doctor or, you know, avoids getting their teeth cleaned and then has to have an emergency root canal, like that kind of thing. If you just are able to see the problem and address it without talking yourself out of it, because it's your thought pattern and the feeling you have in response to your thought that makes you talk yourself out of, I don't know, being courageous, right? Or yeah. or being willing to tolerate being a little bit frustrated, right? Or not getting it right in front of other people. Or recognizing perhaps you don't have the skill set to deal with the problem. See, the, the hard part for me mm-hmm. is when I see a problem and nobody's capable of solving all their problems. Exactly. I struggle asking for help. And so there are some problems, and I'm guilty of this, where I don't deal with it in a timely manner because I don't want to go to somebody else to help me with it. Okay, so let's unpack that just for, for just very briefly. Yeah. What is the fear? Because this is going to be helpful for everyone listening. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you to ask for help? It means that somebody might not think as well of me. Yeah, great. Perfect. And I would say that that's the most common answer I get from clients. Yeah. Right? So you're not alone. No, I know. And if we can and if we can all hear that, right? Yeah. Like if everybody who's listening can hear that and go, Oh, okay, well, you know, this really super smart guy who's on the radio feels that way, then it's normal and so I can reach out and ask for help. And I think if we all did that a little bit more too, it would just become more normal in society and then that would change all of our problem solving skills, right? It would kind of upregulate us in this really beautiful way. Yeah. And for those who have the same issue that I do, you know, I'm still working on it in my mid fifties and, you know, I've actually gotten to the point now 
where I can express when I feel like I like, and you know, I, I will exhaust all options before I will go to somebody yeah. else for help, but I'm slowly learning because learning is important as we get older yeah. that, you know, identifying those things that you can't do yourself and asking for help is a skill set too. Is You have solved the problem by going to somebody who can actually help you. Yeah, it's it's a really humbling experience, and you know, and I'll say for all the listeners, I'm right there beside Jamie. I'm exactly the same. I really struggle with it, and I'm in my mid forties. And I would say, like in the past year, it's something that I'm really yep. working on. Got it. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jamie. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Lauren Barker, Carolyn Tanner Cohen, and Tracy Sagrati. And thank you all for listening to the Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The July-August issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.